Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian. My guest today in the studio is Rasmus Kambeck. He's a freelance journalist from Sweden. His work focuses mainly on the former Soviet republics, particularly the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. He has written extensively on Azerbaijan's caviar diplomacy and was even a subject of a smear campaign leading to a report by RSF, Reporters Without Borders, calling for an end to the harassment. And he has been in Armenia several times. He was here right after the war. And as far as we know, the last foreign journalist to be able to get into Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Welcome to the program, Rasmus. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You were also here during our media festival uh, mm-hmm. this past May. And, um, you know, we have been following you from afar for many years, the work that you've been doing. And I want to start, and you were just recently in Sunik in Goris, uh, and just returned uh, yesterday. Yesterday. I'd like to hear about your impressions of the situation there as well. But let's start with caviar diplomacy and Mm -hmm. perhaps take it a step back. And what intrigued you about the whole thing? So um, when I came back from uh, from Nagorno-Karabakh in March 2021 or April 2021, I started to write articles apparently about what happened and to publish them and so on. Quite an early stage, I was in touch with the Azerbaijani ambassador in Sweden. This quite often happens to foreign journalists that are writing about the the conflict from the Armenian side. They would be in touch with the... They, they would, would get, get in touch the, with you. Yeah, they would get in touch with you. Um, the, the Azerbaijani ambassador, yeah. They, they will contact you and write to you and say that, okay, so I believe that your reporting is good, but it's a bit imbalanced. So uh, we have a solution for this. And this is to offer you uh, a trip to Azerbaijan, basically. And uh, we started to, you know, and I, I had my doubts. And one thing is that, you know, I had been to uh, Nagorno-Karabakh four times before. And um, and after a while, he said, OK, so the only thing you need to do to go on this trip is to uh, write a letter where you are asking for forgiveness or and, and recognizing Nagorno-Karabakh as the um, territory of Azerbaijan. I mean, they say this with a straight face. It's incredible that they would yeah. say this to a journalist. I mean, I understand, you know, diplomacy and everything, but to say this to a journalist. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the, I, I was actually, you know, quite um I, I was really thinking about doing this because i i, I thought it was a, a way to go to azerbaijan and you know as a journalist journalistic wise you, you want to go to both sides and tell the story and you and also you know i'm, I'm curious about going to azerbaijan again i've been there before mm-hmm. um not as a journalist though um but simultaneously as this happened a swedish azerbaijan organization they wrote to me and said that uh, we want to invite you to azerbaijan um, because uh, we are running a project for Swedish journalists, photographers, and uh, people who are just interested in, in telling the story from the Azerbaijani side. And when I started digging in this organization, I could see that it was quite connected to the uh, embassy. Um, so I kind of played them against each other. And uh, in the end, I pretended that I was going to go. And I didn't sign the letter before uh, you know, one month later or two months later, I was thinking about signing it. And I, I kept telling the ambassador that I would sign it, I would sign it, I would sign it to get more and more information. And right. this I got. <laughs> um, uh, so you played them at their own game? Yeah, kind of. You could say that. It was quite embarrassing for them, uh, I, I assume. So in the end, they actually wrote to me and said, OK, the trip is canceled because of COVID. The problem was that... Two weeks later, a Swedish journalist, he wrote to me and said, Rasmus, I have a story for you. Oh, okay. He had been to Azerbaijan. As part of this trip? Yeah, as part of this trip. So I made an interview with him and we ran the whole story 
where I could tell, you know, from the beginning how it, uh, how they approached me and all this. And this was the uh, start of it. One week later, there was another trip. Another and, trip? Yeah, with Swedish journalists. The problem with this one was that the one of the participants was the chairman of one of the press ethics organizations in Sweden. Uh, <laughs> so it became like a big scandal in Sweden. And then, you know, what I've seen since then is that you um, the, that they arrange trips for maybe 200 journalists a year annually. And this is the and Azerbaijan are very open about this. You know, I've I heard from another journalist who shall remain nameless, um, yep. who said that he did go yep. as part of this arranged trip yep. uh, by the embassy in the country in which he works. He said, because I wanted to go and see for myself, sort of that curiosity that mm -hmm. you were talking about, and then be able to report what I actually did see. But those journalists who do go, I mean, do they not realize how controlled or how managed they are by the authorities once they're there or is that usually you know what i'm talking about is um, when i write about these stories about the paid journalists uh, the paid trips for the for the journalists and for politicians and for tourists and for researchers and for all other kind of groups you know um, is that azerbaijan they are focusing on quantity they are trying to invite as many people as possible quite many of them they will just come back and say that this was bullshit Mm -hmm. They were controlling everything. We could not interview a single person without having people uh, following us. They were even interviewing us and making up things. Which that we we're saw saying. recently, about two months ago, a group of bloggers and journalists who were mm -hmm. taken to Shushi and Hadrut and just posting these beautiful photos yep. and, you know, saying, oh, Azerbaijan is so beautiful without even understanding the context in which they were being sort of used. I ran a story on uh, also a Swedish group um, that went, uh, I think there were like 25, 30 people, tourists. They went there, they were uh, driving around in uh, tanks, uh, trying weapons having photos. But the most incredible thing about this is how the Azerbaijani media is following them. They're covering every step. Mm -hmm. And um, if you Google it, you will find, I don't know, I Googled it and I found maybe 50, 60, 70 hits in Azerbaijani media. <laughs> no, it's, it's incredible. We know that they are very, very effective in monitoring media, whether it's international media. And we're seeing even recently Hikmet Hajiev, who's the advisor to President uh, Aliyev, you know, writing letters, shooting off letters to the New York Times and the BBC saying mm -hmm. you're not impartial, you're just, everybody's a paid Armenian lobbyist, even the BBC, which is <laughs> comical, really. But then they started this smear campaign against, you know, I remember seeing a tweet of yours. And according to the report, you know, just between a period of two weeks, there were 900 tweets mm -hmm. uh, against you, calling you an Islamophobe, terrorist, spy, and of course, accused of being funded by the Armenian lobby. Yeah. Uh, this is not it. I mean, this, this is, you know, you, you get these trolls on uh, on Twitter and other social media platforms, uh, of course, you know, but it's uh, the big thing is that every time I'm writing a piece for a newspaper, they will uh, get in touch with the editor in chief and mm -hmm. uh, and complain. And this is not only the ambassador. He will do it, but also, you know, the other or Swedish Azerbaijani organizations and people surrounding them. So every time I pitch something to a newspaper, they say, yes, the first thing I do is that, okay, just so you know, you will, <laughs> you, you will be getting get, a letter. <laughs> you will get a letter, not only a letter, you will get many letters, you know, and this is still happening, but it's not, now it's not public. Yeah. I mean, it's their way of controlling the narrative, right? I mean, yep. and, and the amount of resources that they've put in for decades yep. uh, is, is really incredible. And um, it works. 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I know because yeah. well, be, look, the region is very complex. The conflict is very complex, and for many people, you know, sitting in Europe or or the West or wherever, uh, to try to understand the nuances of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict itself is quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, when you're getting only a one-sided sort of narrative or a story, who has time to do that? We live in a three-second culture. People don't really take the time to try to understand it. And of course, they're successful in doing that. And we're seeing that in diplomatic circles mm-hmm. as well. I've had people tell me, well, you know, you don't realize the the amount of work that Azerbaijan has done in Washington mm-hmm. in sort of pitching their side of the story for the last three decades. And they've been able to shape that very robustly. And then here we come saying, oh, look at look at the situation, look at the war crimes, the human rights abuses and all of that. And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, it- exactly. I mean, this is... Uh, what they're doing but right now i i believe that it's changing slowly or especially with the latching corridor and the blockade and so on you know that they are f- they are really losing the information war on and, this. and that's why it, we see this level of hysteria on social media platforms right now from mm-hmm. azerbaijani trolls all the way up to hikmet hajiev you know yeah. whenever he's sort of instrumentalized you know that they are <laughs> they're up against a wall and they want to say something and, and try to change it but i want to uh, you know just uh, go back a bit in time because this was uh, just my initial investigation on carrot diplomacy, which started it, and then I continued Absolutely. with it. And uh, uh, for each new investigation, I uh, I got the uh, smearing smearing campaign against me intensified to uh, the extent where the RSF actually intervened in the end. Uh, but this was, you know, after I ran maybe five, six, seven stories, and I just continued, and I will continue with this. But when I'm talking about carrot diplomacy, I usually talk about it in in three time periods okay uh, so the first time period is when you can see the quite aggressive corruption and when they're actually bribing people mm-hmm. in the council of europe in 2010 to 2014 and then after that they um, they changed the uh, the strategy a bit uh, between the years of 2014 until now basically when they are making it a bit more sophisticated mm-hmm. look at uh, the university ada ada in in Baku before it was just you know kind of a think tank research center but then in 2015 they made it into a university at the same time they started up these other think tanks like uh, Gongos like the Air Center and so on so from going from this corruption bit they went more sophisticated and figured okay so let's work with the researchers and by creating quite uh, sophisticated institutions so they could and uh, opportunities actually collaborate. Yeah, uh, opportunities, yeah. yeah, really. So they created a platform and spent massively amount of money on this. And you can also see how they're working with Azerbaijani students, they're getting uh, scholarships and so on. Right, to some of the best universities around the world. Yeah. yeah, and they're paying a lot and there are quite many going. And you can also see how Western scholars now got a platform to collaborate with Azerbaijan. So basically we have a few, uh, one of my big investigations is on a Swedish think tank again. Um, Mm -hmm. Usually I write about Sweden, but not only, Uh, I will tell a bit more about that soon, Uh, which is called the ISDP in Institute for Security and Development Policy, kind of. And there's a guy who's called Svante Cornell. Who had to resign because of your investigation. He didn't resign. Okay. Yeah, he didn't resign. This is... uh, I was hoping for it for him to resign, but he didn't. So he's the rector and the founder of this uh, think tank. But during the former government, he became a political advisor in Sweden. He became a, a political advisor to the foreign minister on the region in 2010. 
2009. And then he got funded by um, by the Swedish government. And he, they are still funded by the Swedish government. But during this time, they also got funding from the Azerbaijan European Society, the organization which bribed a lot of people in 2010 to 2014 mm-hmm. in, the, in, in Europe. And they got this funding until 2017. After that, the TS, uh, the European Azerbaijan Society, they shut it down because of all the scandals mm-hmm. around it. So then they changed the funding to a construction company from Azerbaijan. So when I was looking into this construction, construction? yeah, a construction company from Azerbaijan is funding a Swedish think tank, which is advising the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Sweden uh, on about the Caucasus, this <laughs> uh, about this region. This construction company is owned by the Aliyev family. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is, right? Uh, and the well, the vice president is married to the president. Yeah. I mean, it's all you need to know. So this happens at the same time as Andlinde, our former foreign minister, mm-hmm. uh, social democrat, was the uh, head of the OSCE during the war or directly after the war. Mm-hmm. So Andlinde, she was basically one of the driving forces in initiating the new negotiations between Armenia and Azerbaijan at the same time as the head advisor is Vante Cornell, who is getting money from from the Aliyev family directly. And again, that's all you need to know to understand how the West is being manipulated. Yeah. And I mean, and a country is, like Sweden. And this is such a clear example on how it works. And, and we can see that it happens in, in Germany and other countries as well. Of course. So the third phase of the caveat diplomacy. So the first one was the uh, Council of Europe, aggressive corruption. The second was the implementation of academia and uh, making it more sophisticated, which is still going on. The third phase is after the war. And this is what I've been focusing mainly on. And now we're talking up about the paid trips to Azerbaijan. So what Azerbaijan realized uh, is that, okay, so we started a war. We uh, took control of two thirds of Nagorno-Karabakh and the uh, surrounding areas with force. This is not good for diplomacy, right? So or the now, image, right? And image. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now they need to change this uh, this image. And then they started with all these pay trips for the foreign journalists. So the statistics I've kept shows that there have been about 450 journalists on paid trips to Azerbaijan. Since the war? Since the war. And mainly from Europe uh, or all over, all over the, the world? world? You know, it's um, many are from Europe of course, uh, there are some, most of them are young freelancers. They're not well known. Right. Uh, so they're looking to make a name for themselves, perhaps. And yeah. Getting kind a story. Of, and yeah. And or they are, you know, f- far right journalists and you know, be connected to some really far right media and stuff like this. So they're, so very few of them are established and uh, have a good reputation. Uh, there are a few examples from Italy, mainly from Italy, where they are uh, from state media. Uh, well, we also know Italy's position vis-a-vis yeah, Azerbaijan, Armenia. Exactly. Yeah. So journalists, they started with journalists and then they went to researchers, did the same thing. You know, they're starting up uh, with all these uh, big conferences in Shushi, Shusha, and invite them. And then they started with uh, inviting the tourists on the same kind of trips. And then, you know, they have this whole spectra of people who are able to change the narratives and image of Azerbaijan. Right. It's not working, though. There is the argument that their caviar diplomacy uh, has or is starting to collapse at the Mm -hmm. moment because and I think that also from the perspective of, you know, world leaders, 
they have to be blind not to see what the situation is. Mm -hmm. But of course, there's a lot of geopolitical considerations, strategic considerations, and of course, Europe needs to stay warm in the winter, and therefore, it's okay to um, not turn a blind eye necessarily, but to continue in this both-sidedism, asking both sides to de-escalate the situation when everybody's very clear that Azerbaijan continues to be the aggressor mm -hmm. uh, after the war. Yep. Um, and they are trying to impose a, a winner's peace, if you will, well, if peace is the ultimate goal yeah. at this point, it's not clear to us if that is the ultimate goal. Just this past weekend, we were we, we just seem to be on high alert all the time because we don't know how it's going to all of a sudden escalate into something that will be catastrophic. I would argue for both mm -hmm. because this is not um, a tenable situation to keep living in. From the perspective of a freelance journalist like yourself, yep. you write for Blank Spot. Yep. You've been to many, many countries in your career. Is it just about making a name for themselves or getting a free trip? Is that sort of that ethical considerations or is it just they want to get a story? And What I've seen is um, when we're talking about press ethics, we we speak about it a lot in Scandinavia. But we don't practice it, it seems. Uh, in Scandinavia, it's, you know, it, we we speak about it a lot and people kind of, you know, they, they, they really try to practice it. And we have a, you know, a very living debate all the time about these things. Uh, when I speak to journalists from the UK, from other countries uh, where they don't have this debate on the press ethics. It doesn't have such a bad reputation to go on pay, uh, pay trips, kind of, mm. among freelancers. And I think this is one aspect which actually uh, struck me quite early on when I was writing about these things. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of it, that uh, people, they don't, they see it as an opportunity to save some money, right. basically. It's always uh, and I think that most journalists, they think too highly on themselves when it comes to this. <laughs> well, we do have a reputation of thinking too highly of ourselves at yeah, times. <laughs> exactly. So, just before we move on and talk about yeah. uh, your recent trip to Sunik, you know, from your perspective, when you are in the middle of a conflict uh, as an individual, as a citizen, uh, as a journalist, I always feel like we're up against a wall mm -hmm. and we can't see anything except that wall mm -hmm. because we're just so desperate to get the news out uh, to the world. And, and oftentimes we feel like we're just screaming into the void and nobody really listens and nobody understands and nobody really cares. And I understand in, in a world that's strewn with so many conflicts and bigger issues, mm -hmm. 120,000 people, you know, in the large scheme of things is nothing if you look at every other conflict that's taking place, unfortunately, but they are human beings with lives and dreams and hopes and all of that and families. Right now, I don't even know if this is a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Mm -hmm. What is the view from Europe or, or the view from Sweden, let's say, about the conflict right now? From my perspective, from the Swedish perspective, people, they don't know about it. So it's um, uh, this is uh, this is the case in quite many countries. And from my perspective, why I'm writing so much and following this conflict, one thing is that it's there are things happening all the time. And uh, all, <laughs> you know, no all the uh, geopolitical agents are, are involved in this, uh, in this right. region and mm -hmm. they all want to be involved. And when you're going to Armenia, the discussion you're having is, okay, so which is our best partner? Yeah. I mean, geopolitical partner. So, uh, but also from a legal perspective, if you're looking at, at the conflict, it's extremely complicated from a legal perspective. And what's happening now is also challenging the world order. Yeah. In a way that other conflicts they are not doing in the same way. 
if you're looking at Azerbaijan and uh, how they're treating Nagorno-Karabakh and all these uh, peace negotiations that were going on for 30 years and how they were, they were failing and now uh, and and the in- involvement of Russia at the same time as they are in Ukraine and so on. So it's a it's a very complicated and interesting conflict from this perspective. But it also, you know, derives back to the, to the genocide of the Armenians. Uh, and you can see that this is a, there's so many aspects and perspectives sure, that, that you sure, can write about. Absolutely. And and it is the, you know, the West versus Russia and the Russia's invasion of Ukraine really changed the dynamic yep. in the region. And, and it got um, the West more interested. And, and, you know, I always say we're not, uh, we're not stupid. We certainly see why the West is uh, is engaged at the moment. Uh, their what their objective is. We also are not stupid and see what Russia's objective is and how they're basically a partner. They're strategic allies with Baku and not Yerevan. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, contrary to all of the written documents and Armenia's membership in the CSDO and so forth. Um, so we do understand that there are larger. Um, influences taking place and will inform how these negotiations, I I can't even call them peace negotiations because the sides have to want peace. And at this point, Azerbaijan is not interested, or at least the regime is not interested in peace. And the argument always is, okay, even if Armenia were to lose Artsakh completely, that is not going to stop Aliyev from attacking uh, Armenia proper. And we at the moment, have Azerbaijani soldiers on sovereign Armenian territory. They have taken over large, you know, I don't want to say large, but significant portions of uh, several regions in the country, very strategic heights. Um, And uh, they have sort of uh, even grounded themselves there. And in a few days, it'll be the the one-year anniversary of the attack on Mm -hmm. Jermuk, the Armenian town. And in a few weeks, it'll be the third anniversary of the war. And again, with everything that's going on, the, our tensions are quite uh, high uh, at the moment. So coming to that, you were in Sunik uh, and you met with some families, I believe, yeah. or people from Artsakh who've been stranded. And again, just so our viewers, our listeners rather, sorry, understand, the Lachin Corridor remains blockaded. Yeah. At the moment, since June 15, even the Russian peacekeepers and the ICRC have were banned from uh, taking any kind of humanitarian aid. But uh, in the last week, 10 days, the ICRC has been transporting uh, patients back and forth who need uh, treatment in Armenia. You met some people in Sunik. Tell me about uh, that trip. I mean, so my ob- objective for this trip, um, it's my fourth trip in one year <laughs> and uh, to Armenia. And I this time I really didn't want to come uh, to go to Armenia to start with because I just bought a new sailboat and I want to be out with my sailboat and I'm newly married and I wanted to be with my new wife, you know, so with with my wife <laughs> and have a good time. But uh, then, uh, then the reports came uh, that the negotiations in the UN Security Council are not going that well to to have a resolution. Mm -hmm. So I decided to go to Armenia because I want to look into different scenarios for the future. So one scenario uh, that I've been talking to diplomats about and uh, I've been talking to uh, normal people about is uh, mass evacuations from Nagorno-Karabakh if it continues like this. I've also uh, spoken about another scenario when uh, where the international community is giving even more pressure on Azerbaijan and they can open the Latin corridor, uh, at least for humanitarian aid for a short while or something like this. It doesn't look good, to be honest. And when I go to Sionik and I just came from the blockade, I've been there before as well. 
this time they had the military checkpoint. I was there in March and they didn't build it. They hadn't built the military checkpoint at that point. And they had all these 23 trucks of cargo mm-hmm. that you see in the pictures. Right. Honestly, frankly speaking, I think it's a PR show, uh, just a PR show to have the trucks there. And the uh, tent, which they call humanitarian tents, are completely empty. It's just, you know, there are shares uh, for PR conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, what worries me is that I've seen very little evidence that there are preparations for uh, mass evacuations. What I mean with this is not that they should mass evacuate, but they should be prepared to have humanitarian aid in Goris or other regions uh, in storage just in case it will because happen. Because your, your position is that Azerbaijan will open the latching corridor and uh, force people out. I don't know how it will happen. I don't want to speculate too much in how it will happen. But as the situation, when I've been talking to people in Nagorno-Karabakh the last few days, it's, it's really It's extremely desperate. dire, yes. Uh, it's desperate. And people, they are talking about it. They want to leave as well. Um, in, in, a, in a much higher extent than my last trip. Uh, uh, well, uh, we have to understand the situation, Rasmus. People have no food. Yeah. I mean... It's it's, it's it's the food, the water, the baby formula is what, you know, sort of drives me over the edge and, and understanding that people can't feed their children, mm-hmm. uh, don't have medicine for their diabetes or for hypertension or mm-hmm. whatever it is that they need. Um, so, of course, as a parent, as a human being, your first instinct is to protect your family. And mm-hmm. when you can't do that, uh, especially on, it's, it's a total blockade in the 21st century. It's 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 mind boggling almost. It is. It is. Uh, uh, and and I understand the 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 people's um, desperation. It is catastrophic at the moment, and I don't know how much more we can sort of impress upon the world that this is the situation. Um, my fear is that I mean the, again, this is just a very personal opinion, you know, of someone who's been following this for the last 20 years. My fear is that they might just open the border and and force people out and not even let them take cars just because there's no fuel anyway. Yeah. I mean, on foot. And this is, I think people have to understand this. You mentioned the genocide earlier, this intergenerational trauma that we have. It's just, it's just resurfacing again because, again, 100 and I don't know how many years later, we're having to face this reality mm-hmm. uh, when there we do live in a world of communication where we can tell the world we do have the pictures and the videos and the and the eyewitness accounts and yet we are still in this unbearable unbearable situation at the moment so mm. anyway coming back to the Hakari yeah. bridge yeah, well, and the this, trucks this, this is just one reflection I had that I've seen very little preparation mm-hmm. uh, by the Armenian side by, uh, on the Armenian side I mean and when I'm talking about preparation it's it's more it, it's having uh, humanitarian aid uh, uh, at the spot. They have it in the trucks right now, but it should be more organized than these things. I come from a background where I worked for NGOs, the Red Cross mm-hmm. in Sweden and Save the Children. Uh, so I've been in humanitarian aid for quite many years and working with uh, with these things. So I'm, I'm surprised that it's not more organized. I think that, again, this is just a very personal perspective on my part. I think that when we do see mass evacuation, that's ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And that means the beginning of the end. Yeah. And and I'm not sure that um, the government in Armenia or the authorities are publicly 
saying that they're preparing and I don't know that they are. I have no information on that mm -hmm. point. But if we were to start publicly talking about it, then I think the reality sinks in. Mm. Uh, and so, again, I'm not sure what, what they're preparing. I agree that preparations, we always have to have contingency plans. And one of our biggest failures as a state has been that we have never had a contingency plan. Mm. Um, but, you know, speaking about the Red Cross, uh, and, and you said it's a PR stunt. And so is, of course, the Red Crescent in Azerbaijan with their 40 tons of flour or this Russian <laughs> truck that's now stuck apparently. Uh, I don't know. By the time we publish this podcast, I don't know if that truck is going to make it into Gharapag. And it's one truck. Exactly. exactly. Which will last for three hours, <laughs> whatever's in it. And they, they haven't specified what's even in the truck. No, 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 no. It's, uh, yeah, so um, what we see is a battle of the humanitarian aid, uh, basically, and this is uh, this is really disheartening mm -hmm. for somebody who's been working with humanitarian aid sure. for a long time. But I I also want to tell a story about some people I met in in Goris. So I spoke to a few uh, Arsakians who uh, who are still on the wrong side of the blockade, and they had the offer to go back to uh, Artsakh um, earlier in the summer, but they had the opportunity, but then it was canceled. So they got stuck and now they don't want to go back. They don't because of the arrests of the people who are, who have, have been trying to leave. And because these men that I was, uh, that I spoke to, they are 60 ish and were soldiers in the, uh, first, in, in the first war. war. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's a whole other layer to this, catastrophe right yeah again for our listeners an armenian from artsakh when while he was being transferred by the icrc mm -hmm. to come to armenia for heart surgery was arbitrarily detained arrested taken to baku and you know uh, because he participated in the first war and we have an article about that uh on evn report where we talk where we say by societatikian and say that every man today in artsakh mm -hmm is a potential target for being arrested and tried for war crimes. Yeah. And and they're even talking about young boys who took part in the second uh, war. So, of course, this fear is palpable. Yeah, of course. And uh, and this just adds to all the other yeah. fears uh, yeah. that exist. So it's a living prison. Yeah, uh, it's an open concentration course. camp yeah. today. Um, so from my last trip in March to this region, uh, there's a big difference, a mm. uh, huge difference, you know, in working. And in March, I could um, take photos of people, I could talk to people, get quotes and all this. And now they don't, they, want, they to. don't want to appear with their faces. So I took photos of their backs instead. And yeah, uh, and I have to make them completely anonymous in my articles. Uh, Look, we've been talking to journalists in Artsakh um, and asking them to do, let's do a podcast, let's do, um, you know, a video conference call, you know, tell the world what's actually happening. And we forget that they are mothers and fathers and yep. human beings and who themselves have to wait in line for hours and hours to get 200 grams of bread. Mm -hmm. um, and they are just completely um, devastated and disheartened. They, they, can't, they, don't, they don't even want to talk even. It's very, very, I don't even know. I, I've run out of uh, adjectives to use, mm -hmm. to be honest, about the situation. And again, this whole show that's going on with the humanitarian aid, that's a story in itself, right? Yep. The battle of a humanitarian aid. And, uh, <laughs> this is a story I really want to write as well, to describe it in, um, in detail. Well, we will look forward to that story. I think it's an important one to tell, how people are being used in this uh, geopolitical war in this war of attrition even and uh, 
how really the most vulnerable are suffering at the moment. Thank you, Rasmus, for the work that you're doing. We appreciate it and we look forward to reading, as I said, your upcoming pieces. Thank you so much.